Hey everybody, just real quick before the show started, uh, this is Steve, and I just wanted to let you know, for all the latest information on our podcast, hit us up on Twitter at E-I-L-F Movies, that's everything I learned from movies. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you're looking for incredible art, or maybe gifts for an upcoming uh, birthday, or Father's Day, Mother's Day, anything like that, Christmas, uh, you can check out Izzy's art at untidyvenus.etsy.com. You can also find us on all the uh, podcatchers like Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days, Podcast Addict. Uh, basically, Google us, you'll find us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, on with the show. Everything I learned from movies helps to make life a little bit groovy. With a one last plot holes, a gratuitous boobies. It's time to get busy with your friend Steven Marco Kairos was the stand-in for actor Nicolas Cage from 1994 to 2005. He is also an actor and producer of Uncaged, a stand-in story, a short film that's been making the circuit. Ladies and gentlemen, Marco Kairos was kind enough to join us on Everything I Learned from Movies. Okay, and we're good. Excellent. Oh, and actually, just as a backup, I'll do it on here, too. So I got a new laptop. I can actually do two things at once. It's kind of cool. Wow. Wow. Better than me. (laughs) Oh, what's that? There we go. So do we we have like a sync point? Do we clap or something? Oh, yeah. Let's just do like three, two, one clap, if that works. Okay, sure. All right. Three, two, one, clap. All right, we'll get synced up. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Well, Marco, thank you for joining us here on Everything I Learned from Movies. Uh, like I said, we're, you may not know, but we're huge fans of Nicolas Cage and his work. and Which means we're huge fans of your work. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, <idea. laughs> the behind-the-scenes guy, that's me. Exactly. We behind-the-scenes guys. Well, that's where the magic happens is behind the scenes, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's where, the, that's where the bloopers end up. <laughs> well i guess uh just to start off if uh do you want to let us know like uh kind of like where you grew up and uh, what your family life was like uh kind of you know how marco began <laughs> well he didn't become anything like a couple i'll tell you that much <laughs> um i was nowhere near that universe um i grew up in toronto canada which is where i'm based currently again um, and uh, from uh, Greek um, uh, immigrant parents um, who never spoke English and lived in a very working class um, environment growing up, like a lot of immigrants did back then in the 60s and 70s, and uh, uneducated, like pretty much how that world worked back then. Uh, the parents never spoke English, and they were completely uneducated, and, uh, and it was a very blue-collar lifestyle, except that... I was a diva in my own right from a young age, so um, I didn't succumb to the regular blue-collar world that I was living in. I was kind of like living outside of myself. But we were raised in Greektown, and then we moved into a suburb later on in the years when I was in my teens. And uh, never did get a car because uh, my parents never learned English, so um, it was really hard to, to function when you can't speak the language. So I ended up getting my first car while I was, you know, um, working and uh, going to school. But I never finished school either, very much like Cage. Um, only I needed money versus I needed a career. So I, I uh, ended up working uh, because that was more important than school. And we were never going to be able to fund me to go to any school. So, in fact, none of my siblings went to school um, after high school. We just all ended up working, having regular lifestyles and then moved up in the world just by work ethic alone like a typical immigrant story 
But uh, so I did. So I grew up here and uh, and I, I ventured out later on in life, you know, after the age of 20 to uh, Paris, France, to learn about culture and life and other cultures other than my little Greek hood in living in Canada. And then I ended up moving to L.A. Uh, in the mid 80s. And um, and uh, and that started off this fixation with that whole LA vibe of the Brat Pack and actors. And I started to take acting classes when I was working in a restaurant, typical thing, um, standard. And me being Greek, uh, a restaurant was was not a big uh, stretch for me to work in the hospitality industry, which I did in Paris and then in Los Angeles in a variety of restaurants. And then I started to take acting classes um, just to see where that was ever gonna go. It didn't help that I was illegally living in the States. <laughs> So I was legally living in France, so I, I did get booted out of the States, went to jail, did that whole little number, not to get overly anxiety-ridden over that escapade, but that was a rough period in life, especially when you're in your 20s. And um, and lo and behold, later on, once I got, uh, you know, ended up uh, getting booted back to Canada, I ended up uh, winning a green card lottery, lo and behold, and uh, and made my way back to the States, back to L.A., and resumed my sappy acting career, which was pretty much null and void, and back to the restaurant business. And uh, but now I was legal, so I didn't feel you know like a, like a typical Mexican, which and they were all illegal, and and I was illegal, and uh, we had that in common. You know, we just spoke different languages at home. So I feel like I, I've I've always kind of lived like an immigrant underdog through all those years, even in the states. And, uh, and one thing led to the next. Um, after the riots of L.A., I, I decided to move back to uh, Toronto because I had a dead-end career and a dead-end life. I'd only gotten a couple of different parts, um, and they weren't really anything to sustain anything. And I wasn't really a dedicated actor. Um, I was just kind of hoping and praying that things would happen. And, and it didn't. I kind of failed overall. And I was a better restaurant guy than I was an actor. So I went home trying to regroup that world but by then the world has moved on and they weren't that interested in me so I ended up just working part-time in a restaurant and I got uh, into an extras agency just to make some extra money because I was in the unions and both in Screen Actors Guild in the States and ACTRA in Canada and now I also hold a green card but I'm not living in the States anymore and I, I went in for an audition uh, for extra bucks, aside from the um, restaurant job I had, and it was for a stand-in gig for the actor Nicolas Cage. And uh, it was here at Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is by Niagara Falls. And uh, it, was a, it was a Christmas movie shot in the winter where it was minus 25. And I'm a person who loves the warm weather. And being of Greek blood, I never liked winter. And, and I, I didn't want to do the job, and, but I did get hired as Nick Cage's double and stand-in, and I'd never done it, so I didn't really know what to expect or what to do. I initially turned it down until I finally said yes, because I was needing the money, and they were going to pay fairly well for a first gig. And um, so I took it, and, uh, and they put you up in a hotel over there, because it's a two-hour drive from Toronto. And I didn't own a car because I didn't have money for a car, so I could only bus fare. But they had shuttle vans every weekend for crew and, and who didn't have a car. And they would shuttle us to the hotels uh, in this uh, small town, quaint town, very Norman Walk, Rockwell type of town, for a film called Trapped in Paradise with uh, Lovitz and Dana Carvitz. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> So it was actually more fun off the set than it was on the set. The set was misery. Off the set was hysterical, thanks to the lead actors who would constantly 
you know, mock everything that was around them, including themselves. But uh, so I got that job and um, I took it because it, it meant some financial gain for me, who was not doing very well in terms of any kind of money. And it just happened to be for Nick Cage. And within that period of working with him, um, I found myself to be very good and very uh, much in control of my own stand-in mindset. I didn't really follow the leader, but I kind of ended up vocalizing um, certain shots and camera lenses and markings and, and positions that Nick should be in that were not related to him by the director or the camera people. So I kind of became that in-between guy. And uh, usually you get fired if you're a stand-in for that because it's overstepping the boundaries yeah. and your place is to stand there and shut up. But me being a Greek and a loud person and I didn't care what was happening. I just kind of made up my own rules only because I didn't have experience to know what the real world rules were. And uh, Cage liked that uh, because I made the scene go faster because we knew where we were going to be shooting, what the lenses were like and, um, and, and how many camera angles there were. And it would just speed the process up without a lot of people intercepting. So it was always me. And I realized that that became invaluable to him as he was building up an entourage. And then he asked me if I would travel with him as a personal stand-in right after that film. And lo and behold, I did, you know, at my expense because they were all low-budget films. But I did take it and I thought, well, I'll learn about filmmaking because as an actor, you don't know much about it. And as a stand-in, you know nothing from nothing. And so <laughs> it gave me the opportunity to learn actually what crew members did and the unions and, uh, and the rules of filmmaking and the high hierarchy the above the line and the regular blue collar stiffs that made up the crew and the, the, you know, to push the film together on set. So, and I was that hybrid, kind of like cast meets crew in between. You're juggling both cast and crew because you're doing off-camera dialogue as well, but you're really a crew member because you're on crew hours. So I learned very quickly that this is how a film operates, though they operate slightly different depending on the director. They had the same formula. So then I went off to the next several films with Nick and I was learning what it's like to actually make a film from the eyes of a director and a cinematographer and an actor. So I got uh, firsthand experiences like going to a film school, but getting paid for it and, and uh, having on onset experience. So I just kind of chalked it up as that. And I thought, well, it'll end sooner than later and I'll just resume my life in the restaurant business. Lo and behold, it got better and better and better. And after he won the Academy Award for leaving Las Vegas, my salary started to go up. I had asked for money and uh, they slowly gave it to me and I became part of the perk package of the entourage. So I wasn't really putting myself up anymore and I started to become the full-fledged diva that you know my hair represented. So uh, I, I became that guy, part of the Coppola clan, basically. And so I started the tour all over the world with him for 10 years. Nice. And when you say diva, do you mean like you had a writer where it was like only yellow M&Ms and stuff like that? Or just uh, just like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Marco Kiros. I'm, I'm the hottest thing here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But I was, you know, I like comfort. And because I came from a, a world of no comfort, typical immigrant status, I was working hard to have it. And when you're working 14 hours, 12 hours, 16 hours a day on set in these, you know, ridiculous locations that only an actor could tolerate, I'll tell you the truth, or a crew member, um, I didn't know what it was like. And I was learning on the job that it's, 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 it's killing your bones and your, in your mind and you're exhausted and you're always on flu medicine. 
So over time, once I started to get the financial perks, I started to get more perks. You get a car, you get a nice hotel, you get first class airfare, you start asking for these things, they start giving them to you. You know, you've never been on a first class air flight like most of us haven't. And all of a sudden it's part of that world. You get a limousine from the airport. It's like, wow, a limousine. Like, are you kidding me? It's not even a wedding. So all those (laughs) things were things that real people and especially my status at that time uh, was, uh, you know, a big deal. But I I rolled with it. And uh, and yes, when I went to the hotel rooms, I. I did want Perrier water and I did want extra pillows and I, I did want a king size bed and I did ask for it and they did give it to me. So I felt like JLo, um, but <laughs> I had no talent and she does. And so does Cage, who also wants his comforts. But um, he is, of a, you know, the leading actor of a big superstar film. I was just the leading stand in for a superstar. But uh, I had my little mini me. Um, desires and uh and 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 luckily i got a lot of them so i i ended up living well for that time but i did work like a dog on set so there was no shortage of a perfect work ethic to be on set and that was never faltered not even on a day never called in sick never was late it was always about being there on time and with that you get the perks of that like if i failed on set then i wouldn't get any of this stuff so i really earned my keep but i asked for a few things that i shouldn't have asked for it was kind of over the top i would never have given me those perks but uh i'm glad that the studios had a lot of money and they bowed down to cage's contracts wishes and so i became a part of that so um it was something that you know i've never lived outside of that you know with nick Nice. And just out of curiosity, what, what, what are some of the, the requests? I, I, I work in the hospitality industry myself, so okay. I, I know we get some weird ones every once in a while. He, he works for a well, five-star I'm, hotel, so yeah. he's, he's used to some <laughs> okay. of the more eccentric things. Oh, you would hate me. <laughs> no. I, I, would, uh, I would always call ahead and I would insist on the carpets being shampooed before I arrived. So oh, I was a very Howie Mandel kind of like neurotic about I want it all clean. I wanted those shitty duvet covers off the hotels. I couldn't stand them back then. 20 years ago, that was the yeah. norm. And I wanted real downfield comforters. So I hated those like paisley, skinny, little dirty things that they put on them. So I wanted everything off and I wanted real comforters. And I wanted minimum six downfield pillows on my bed. I wanted three and three sets of three and three, sometimes nine, three, three and three. And I always wanted like bubbly water ready for me. And I wanted slippers and a bathrobe all kind of like set to go. <clears throat> so when I arrived, um, I would have that comfort zone. And I always wanted a back room uh, in a very quiet room facing nothing. I didn't care about views. I just wanted a, a, the quietest room possible that I could sleep in. So and that, that was my big thing was, was the quiet, quiet, quiet. Because um, you're always up, and I couldn't deal with noise, so I, that's what I wanted, and I want everything immaculate and non-smoking and all those other things, you know. Yeah, pretty but, standard. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, for a stand-in, it wasn't standard. I mean, I wasn't well, the actor. Let's let's say you know I was the stand-in, and it's like, well, why are you asking for these things? And I wanted a king size bed. You know, they said we only have a queen size. I said, well, can you find a room that has a king size? Sometimes they'd have to move me um, after a few days until they got the king size room. And then I'm like, okay, now book it for three months. And they said, well, the rate is a little higher. I'm like, production pays for it. 
book it. And uh, and so I also had to rent a car, and then they paid for the parking in hotels, which is ridiculously pricey. You know, it's expensive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they paid for <laughs> gas, and they paid for, you know, your per diems and your Starbucks coffee. And the whole thing became so ridiculous where there was no expenses out of my pocket. So I got to drive a typical, you know, four, four, four-door car, like nice sedan. And uh, it was all cared for by the production office. So I, I had a comfort zone outside of the film set. So it felt like being at home where you could just go to unwind in your hotel room and have a decent car to go out and do your laundry or go out and have a meal on a Sunday and uh, just ride around the mountains if that's what you're going to do. So I did want that perk so I can have some sanity outside of the 70-hour work week on a film set. You know, and weather the weather conditions were usually you know either hot or they were cold and rainy. So I wanted as much comfort as I could in my room and just to at least cocoon myself if I wanted to. So that was important. So that's why I was, you know, kind of like a diva stand-in. It is far from the norm in the real world. Nice. And uh, j j just for clarity for me, like, mm. what, what what is it a stand-in does? Like, I know, from what I understand, a lot of the on-screen time, it's really like the back of your head or something as uh, another actor is in front of you. But uh, if you could just run down for me and maybe other people that don't know exactly what a stand-in does... Uh, well, that part is called photo doubling. So when you do those like back of the head shots or a hand shot, you're picking out a wallet out of a pocket and you only see the hand in the pocket or you're kicking a ball down the street and it's just your foot, that's photo doubling, which I've done often in a, in a distant car shot where you think it's Nick, uh, but it's me driving down these shots and pulling into a driveway or down you know, a dirt road or something. As long as it's not a stunt thing, Fast and speeding, it's just like a regular thing. A stunt, a stand-in usually does that stuff if you're not going to see the actor's face. But that's photo doubling. That's in addition to setting up the shot. So a stand-in basically sets up the shot. Kind of like an understudy on Broadway. It goes through everything that the actor goes through, excluding stunts. So you're going through all of it with the motion of the camera. So if there's one, two, or three cameras, you're pleasing all cameras at the same time or individually, and you're in there for the lighting. So they set up all yeah. the equipment and the lighting for that scene, whether it's indoors, outdoors, on a roof, in a basement, irrelevant. You're there for all of it. Whether you're you know, running out from a fence, backyard, uh, you're doing all that stuff. As long as it's not a stunt, you're setting it up and you're doing multiple rehearsals and sometimes with a supporting cast as well until your actor shows up. And then they they tape all that and then Nick would see it and then he would go through the motions with a rehearsal. Nice. Excellent. So there's lots of uh, lots of reels of you uh, basically doing everything except jumping the Shelby GT and, you know, stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the basic normal stuff that don't require anything that of expertise, you know, or training. Because a standard has no training. You're just on there. You're, you're facilitating the cinematographer, the director, the camera operators. And they're assuming you understand how Cage is going to be working the scene because you've watched him enough and you understand kind of what he's going to do other than when he goes, you know, a little on his banana thingies where he's creating on the moment. Um, the standard stuff. I don't do that whole cagey-wagey stuff that he's known for um, simply because it's impossible to replicate. And secondly, I would look silly doing it. So I just kind of like go through the steps that he would go through um, in a very stand-in way. And, uh, and sometimes you read off, off the sides your script and go through it just for momentum. And sometimes you just walk through it in your head. Nice. But it's and always about the lighting. 
Oh, most of it, like, excellent. And I know she also did uh, stand-in work for, like, uh, Mark Metcalf with the Stupids and Pierce Brosnan and Mars Attacks and stuff like that, too. That all just kind of come from also being part of Cage's Entourage or just, was that, sorry, one moment. Um, Yeah, sorry, I have a cat cat. running around the background here, sorry. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) But, but yeah, with, like, uh, like, work with those other directors, like, obviously, like, John Landis with uh, the Stupids and uh, Tim Burton with Mars Attacks, was that a completely different experience, or...? Uh, no, not really, except that um, they, you know, they, I was assigned to those people. So they were all what I would call filler films for me. In between Cage films, my first film was with Cage. And then in between Cage films, sometimes there's a month off, sometimes there's three months off. I would do filler films and I was already in demand. So I did the Mars Attacks while I was in LA. I just extended my stay. I did here up here for the Baldwins and, and the other guys. And, and working with those directors, I was kind of like a, an ND person, like a nondescript stand-in. So they didn't really pay attention to me. I was just one of the guys standing in for, for the actors. So I wasn't on that level that you would be with Cage. With Cage, you're, you're like part of a team. Uh, I felt that way a little bit with Pierce Brosnan because it was a little more personal. And then they did ask me to come in and be his personal stand-in. But I was already hooked up with Cage, so I declined that. But I did work with Billy Baldwin and Daniel Baldwin and a bunch of other guys. But it was just those one-shot filler film deals in between it all. And I and I wasn't going to give up the, the, uh, the Cage Wage world because I was on that gravy train. And I was just filling in a spot until we got into uh, the next film. Nice. And and, yeah. and I noticed you had a uh, an on-screen uh, appearance in Con Air as Sandino's pilot, in, at least on IMDb. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. that's kind of, okay, it looks like the IMDb picture. I, I, I can make that. Uh, how was it uh, being on, on actual screen and everything? Um, I'm always nervous because I suck as an actor, and that's why I didn't <laughs> succeed. So the truth is I had a bunch of parts in Nick's films, and... Um, and they were given to me by directors. Some of them were cut out, some were not. Some I'm recognizable, some I'm not. Um, but I did get parts, I would say at least a half a dozen, maybe more. Um, and only because the director wanted it. They were, it was a gift from the director to me for the hard work that I dedicated while I was on set. And we, and I got letters from directors as well, thanking me for the work that I had done, which really surprised me because I just thought that's what people did. But I, I realized I kind of set the bar for what a stand-in does. And with that, you get the perk of getting a part in a film uh, as if you're the director's buddy. And that translates to a lot of money in residuals, which, again, I didn't know um, until you become the recipient of that world. And uh, that really kind of helps your world, you know, move better. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So, sorry, one moment. Hey, um, okay. why don't I'm, we upstairs? upstairs? Okay, that'd be great. Thanks. Okay, so sorry. the last one. <laughs> Sorry, we have three cats, and uh, the, oh, the, wow. oddly enough, the uh, names of the cats are uh, Cameron and Poe from Con Air, <laughs> and uh, Pickles, aka Pickleless Cage. Um, oh my god! That, <laughs> that is now. I would worry about you people. Like, <laughs> what? No, why? No. We're, we're just fans. <laughs> That's hysterical. And our cat before that, was Caster Troy. Oh, yeah, cat before was Caster Troy. <laughs> oh, my God. Did that one die? Yeah. Unfortunately, he did pass away, but he Oh, my God. I was kidding. I'm sorry. Every <laughs> minute. <laughs> okay. Wow. He was a super villain. <laughs> he really was. Wow. That's funny. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I apologize for, no problem. for the, uh, the break there. 
Yeah, so that, uh, well, I guess kind of leading into like Face Off and, you know, City of Angels, like that time frame, I mean, you're probably seven or eight movies in at this point. Uh, um, like, were you still kind of looking to get into acting a little bit or was it still more like, I- I'm a stand-in, I'll just be the best stand-in I can be? No, I, I, I was the best stand-in and that was about it. And, and I was comfortable with that position later on in life. And it's like, oh, well, I can't believe you're outstanding. But you know what? If that's what it was, that's what it was. It was There was too much pressure to do other stuff. And I was investing in other avenues outside of the film business at that time. So my hands were full with um, many hours offset working on other um, future projects for myself. Um, nothing to do with the film business. So I, I, I was okay with just being the standard at that point. The traveling standard. You were the stand-in on adaptation where Nicolas Cage plays, you know, twin brothers and everything. Yeah. Was that just a lot more work or <laughs> like? Uh, no, it wasn't because I, I just did whatever Nick did. So I would just switch outfits the whole day. So if he could switch and memorize dialogues in two different characters, I certainly could change a shirt. So yeah. <laughs> to me, it was a, not a big deal. I was just on camera all the time. So it was just hard to get a pee break or you know, any kind of a, te- a telephone break or something because so, you, you're you flipping back and forth where he had time to get into hair, makeup, wardrobe. I was, I just had the shirts ready off offset and I would just flip back and forth. They had an actor playing opposite Nick in that character in prosthetics. So he would uh, act opposite a real actor and it was never me. Um, okay, and uh, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> never. Yeah, that was never me. I'm not an actor. I was a wannabe phony actor. I didn't succeed. I was not good enough for it. My position was a stand-in, and, and that's what I did better. So that's what I did. And they hired real people to do the real acting jobs. Nice. And, and yeah, obviously you did that for, uh, you know, uh, what, 10, 10, 12 years, something like that? Like up until, uh, yeah. like, National Treasure or? Yeah, 10 years. Actually, Lord of War was the last film I had done. Lord of War, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it was 10 nice. years, exactly. Yeah, and in between that, I did all those other filler films. So in between, you know. He was doing other things that wasn't work-related, but, you know, I was filling up those spots with other films. And then I just stopped hey, after Nick. I just I just never went back into the business again. Yeah, that's how you were, like, you know, standing in, like, Boondock Saints and uh, Against the Ropes, yeah. like, standing in for Tony Shalhoub and stuff like that. And I, I mean, yeah. how, how were, were those kind of the same, you know, again, not being part of the entourage or whatever, just kind of the fillers? Uh, they were fillers. You weren't treated the same way. You're treated like a regular stand-in, which back in those days was not really good. You're kind of like cattle. They treat you like, you know, extras and stand-ins. You're kind of like the bottom of the barrel people. They were just going, okay, stand here, stand there. Where are you going? You can't go to the bathroom. It was a lot of yelling back then. Yeah. So there was no real respect for anything. Even though I'd been working with Cage, it didn't matter the minute you're off Cage wage because I was on that perk package. You're back to going to a regular stand-in voucher for Tony Shalhoub, for example. And it was a regular, whatever anybody else made as a stand-in, I was making because it wasn't my cage wage world. And which made sense and working for him was very simple, but uh, the treatment was very different. You know, I, I also had a trailer on set when I was with Cage, you know, I had a parking spot, you know, it was like I was treated like a mini me version of him. And here it was just like, yeah, go into crew parking if you can find a spot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's maybe a bit of a yeah. walk. <laughs> yeah, it could be a 40 minute walk in the rain, but dry yourself up before you show up and don't look like a rag. Yeah. You know, so it became the regular and I knew that once it was going to be over it was like back to they didn't care you know you're like you're back to normal so 
so these were filler films and I realized that it was not where I wanted to be and uh, so I, I did all those films and it was fine but um, after it was all said and done and after Lord of War I was done I just I never walked on a film set again nice. so, so then what was the next step after that I was buying a lot of real estate in between everything and then I started to manage my properties after that nice. uh, they're in uh, Toronto uh, Toronto and Southern Florida. Oh, nice. um, and so uh, I, and now I've kind of like sold everything off to retire. So oh, very it's, nice. it's a different world now. <laughs> yeah. It's been a very laborious life. A lot yeah, of work. yeah. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a yeah. lot of work. <laughs> well, and then yeah. um, I also noticed on your, your website and everything that you're uh, producing a couple uh, podcasts and stuff like that. How's, how's that going? Uh, good. When, when, you know, I, I have people lined up, but I've been too busy to actually get through them now. So the last one I did was two months ago. And uh, I, I, I try to do them as often as I can, but because I'm working on other projects, uh, namely a bunch of, um, you know, cage stuff like my book and so forth, um, I've been more focusing on those avenues much more than the uh, podcast, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to get it all together. It's been tough during COVID as well. Yeah. So people are doing different things and they're not in the same spirits as they were uh, before. So it's it's a little funkier right now. But yeah, I enjoy doing them and I have fun with them. I'm going to expand on it. It's just kind of like a, an in-between time. Nice. And I know you have the, uh, oh my gosh, the, the short film, Uncaged to Stand-In Story. Is the book kind yeah. of... Um, like an extension of that or uh no the book is really in depth about me it's it's oh, okay. it's uh it's really my life story and my my circumstantial life that i never set out to be uh and uh and that's a part of it and that's where a feature film will be done as well um would be mainly focused on that but the book is more about my my you know rise to to that Hollywood stand-in fame and what it's like afterwards, you know, the, the big, the big rise and then the big fall and, uh, and kind of like, kind of like an immigrant story for the most part, uh, which is exactly how I felt growing up and, and living in, in that American culture, which I didn't live in, um, until I was living it. So, um, that's what that's going to be. It's, it's, you know, one of those detailed books about who you are and what you did in life and how you got there. Excellent. And then with the, uh, the the short film Uncaged, is that uh, making like the, the film festival circuits or? Yeah, it did last year in 2019 okay. and it did very well. And then I pulled it off the shelf. I just didn't want to ex extend it. Uh, it was a busy year. Uh, it made it into 21 film festivals. It won five uh, short film festival awards. It was in San Francisco uh, last year uh, at the film festival. I didn't make it, unfortunately. But uh, it was in three L.A. film festivals. Um, I can't remember where else, but it won five awards. Um, but I, I pulled it off the shelf because I didn't want to keep touring uh, through 2020. And uh, come the winter, as it turned out, it became COVID. So it was a perfect time to kind of like shut it down <laughs> yeah, so before yeah, they shut me just down. Just in time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it worked out okay. Nice. And uh, just yeah. a curiosity, like growing up and everything, like what were some of your, your favorite movies and stuff growing up that made you want to like get into acting? Um, you know, it was more circumstantial to get into acting. I wasn't a diehard actor guy. I was much more of a hospitality restaurant person and coming to the background. But I mean, I liked a lot of films. I more focused on films like, you know, Travolta, De Niro, Pacino, because they're more on the Italian side, the Greekness kind of that similarity of life, those that Brooklyn feel, that New York stuff. Um, was more my speed so I would watch more things that were based 
on the East Coast and on the West Coast. I felt like the West Coast films were a bit of an alien-oriented mindset I couldn't tap into as, as a young person. And, uh, and even into my 20s, I couldn't. And that's when I moved to France. And then I liked more European films and stuff. I went to LA by a circumstance. I was I was offered a job in a restaurant in LA, and that's when I decided to take acting classes in the '80s. And that's what kind of like stumbled me into it. But it's not that I set myself like oh, I'm going to be a big movie star. I was like, well, maybe I'll take acting classes, see how cool it gets. You know, how hard can it be? Yeah. Until you realize <laughs> it's damn fucking hard. Yeah. You oh, yeah. know, and that's why Nick Cage is successful, and I'm not, because <laughs> he works at it like a real actor should. Oh yeah. You know, and you have to constantly be working at it too, mm -hmm. and holding yourself yeah. to higher stand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing but and respect. He's that for guy. <laughs> he's that guy, and uh, hats off to him. I, I watched him work day in, day out, and you know, the guy deserves all that. You know, I was like, wow, what was I thinking that I was going to be an actor? I would watch him do his scenes. I'm like, holy fuck, I can't do that shit. And I thought, <laughs> thank God, I can just walk through the scene, and it's good enough. Nice. Uh, just out of curiosity, ha have you seen some of his recent movies like in the last 10 years? Uh, only a couple, but no, I haven't. I've been kind of busy yeah. working on my uh, other business stuff, and I, I, I have not. I saw a couple. I was not thrilled with them, and I just thought to, it's, you know, it, it wasn't working for me so much. I mean, for others it is, but it wasn't for me as much. Um, so I just kind of tuned out. And remember, I was part of that whole clan forever and ever. Yeah. And uh, and I just, I got burnt, uh, burnt out and beaten up by the whole cage thing. Um, yeah. Just to be, and it's like watching your past over and over again. So I just thought, you know, I'm just going to take a break from it and go back to it when I'm in a, in a much more leisure mode. So no feeling like you were his good luck charm or anything like that? <laughs> well, yeah, I could pat myself on the back and felt like I was his good luck charm because things changed after I left. And things went in a different direction. Uh, but, you know, some people look at it as it went downhill. Other people look at it as it went uphill. It just depends on your perspective. And so I, I would leave it at that. I wouldn't say that it was a, a, a downhill turn. I would say it was more an introverted mindset on Cage's part. And it allowed him, in my opinion, to explore a billion other characters that he may not necessarily be able to do in mainstream films yeah. because they cater to a mainstream audience, which equals a lot of bucks. And the directors and writers are consumed by the studios in that respect to make them commercial successes. And with that, you can't be off the wall a little bit. And, and Cage wanted to really dive into the deep inner recesses of, a, of any and all characters and that may not fly on a mainstream film like a George Clooney film or a DiCaprio or Travolta film um, so he went into that other route so I would you know to the general population it would be a decline but to I think an actor actors uh, person I think it would be a, a, a big internal learning curve and uh, and I think that that's kind of the road he took and, uh, you know, if he wants to go super successful in the commercial department, I think he can start to work that way up again. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so eloquently put for how we feel about it, too. Oh, yeah, like, he's definitely. just trying different things, you know, being Taking an big risks yeah. and yeah. just, yeah, trying out different styles and different characters. So. Yeah, because if he does National Treasure 3, he's back to a very bland character that kind of... Um, speaks the narrative of what it is and it could actually be you know no offense but it could be me it could be him it could be you know um, uh, Tom Hanks doing that character it just happens to be Nick but you can't do Nick Cage 
you know, mental mental headspaces if you're not him, yeah. uh, because it's 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 off the mainstream uh, grid. So studios are ready to make a lot of money. So they don't want things that are a little off the wall. They need it to be mainstream. Yeah. And of course, uh, for yourself, you mentioned you had uh, other projects and stuff coming up. Uh, uh, besides the book and the, the film and whatnot, what other, what other things you got going on? Uh, just other minor things I'm going to start to look into now that I'm having that, um, you know, time as I'm, you know, at this age now retired and I don't want to really work. I just want to do what I want to do. <laughs> so I have a couple of assistants. So um, we're peddling those projects. They take time. Uh, because of, you know, space and so forth. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think they're going to come in the next year. They should be done. And we'll see where it goes. I mean, it could drag me right back into the limelight. Uh, or I could just go sideways. I'm not really sure. Excellent. And uh, right. if we wanted to keep track of all this, where would be the best place to follow you and, you know, keep up to date on everything? Uh, I would say kind of Instagram. I have a social media guy who kind of like runs that stuff. And we put things out just once a week, not a lot. And the reason is because we're in the middle of working on things. So we're just kind of like flashing back on certain photographs and videos we had done in the past. And that just kind of keeps a little bit of a flow going until things become a little more concrete. Excellent. And of course, uh, the name of our podcast is Everything I Learned from Movies. Are there any uh, lessons you'd like to share with our listeners, other people, uh, you know, looking, uh, I guess just in general, but maybe looking again to the industry or just what you've learned over the years that you'd like to pass on? Well, uh, I think everybody would agree that the business, Stephen, is really difficult. And I think you have to be a, a thousand percent dedicated to succeed on any level, whether you are a grip whether you're in transportation, whether, you're, whether you want to be the um, set designer, the art director, uh, the actor, uh, cinematographer, camera operator. These are very dedicated positions. They are not like, oh, I'm going to like try this out. These are skilled professions. There's a lot at stake and, um, and you, you're, you, you kind of like forfeit a real life. So anybody who's young and wants to get into the business, you also have to understand people's skills, which most people don't know. And they kind of discover on set, but they a lot of people don't make it past the first, second or film because they don't understand that and they get fired. You really have to understand humans and, and they're all in different categories, these people. And they all come from all walks of life and you have to understand that. It's not just one job you go to and everybody's the same. It's, it's so far removed from that because the art director is very different from the craft service guy and you're all in the same room and you are equal billing and, uh, and you have to understand that. So there's a lot of work. And I would say it's 12 to 16 hours a day and it's it's months at a time. And despite the weather, you're you're on that set, despite how sick you get, despite a parent dying or your sister getting married. Chances are you're not going to attend that because if you miss the film sets for those few days, you're fired. So it's it really is a difficult business, I would say think twice about getting in the business. I'm glad I'm out of it and only kind of coming into it with what I want to you know, share. But outside of that, I, I was done. And I was like, I gave up enough of my life for the business. So that, it's, it's a tough business. It's it, you really have to like, think about it. Like I discourage people from getting in the business, because <laughs> most people think that they can get wing it. Yeah. It's it'll it'll knock you out like like COVID or like like a major Asian flu, it'll knock you out and, and you'll be on the floor. And you're wondering why you're doing it. You know, if you're really not into it, or you're not super financially compensated or cared for by the people you're with, then I would suggest get into anything else but that. 
Excellent. Well, that's yeah. definitely good advice uh, coming from someone with experience, obviously. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, again, follow him on Instagram at, uh, is that at Marco Kyris, K-Y-R-I-S? That's correct. Okay. Perfect. All right. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, have you back on in a year or so when the other projects are coming on and help, uh, help promote those. Yeah. You never know. I mean, we'll see where things go. That would be nice. Be nice. And enjoy your time out there in uh, in Northern California. Uh, thank you. And, uh, <laughs> enjoy Toronto. Uh, we're, we're actually in Utah now. Uh, we just, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but, we just uh, moved okay. away. <laughs> yeah, so we, we got winter okay. coming, so we're looking forward to it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good, good. Okay. It's very pretty there. I've been there. Oh, yeah, excellent. Yeah. So, well, you're welcome to come yeah. visit us, you know, <laughs> once everything's in order. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. And yeah, yeah, a pleasure meeting you, Marco. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes. Me too. Me too.